The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No mai, hari mai, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wish you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland Toku Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of the show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of the Tasman District Creative Community Scheme, so big thanks to them. And if you'd like to find out how to get involved or wish to support the show in other ways, please go to the website, which is deathwalkersguidetolife.com. and thank you for joining me for episode 11 of season 2 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. In today's show, I'll be speaking with Deathwalker Claire Turnham, who is the founder of Only With Love or OWL and co-director of Manaki Mats. We'll be chatting about home-based death care. But before I corridor with Claire, it's time for the first bookend, Death in Print. And since we're looking at home-based care of the dying and the dead in this episode, I'd like to introduce you to the extraordinary book, Dying, a memoir by Corey Taylor. Corey wrote this book in only three weeks, which is pretty extraordinary for anyone, but the fact that she was dying at the time makes it even more so. The book was published in May 2016 and she died the following month in June. The culture in which Corey was raised and died is my culture, middle-class-ish white Australia. It's easy to forget how different it is to the culture in which I am now immersed here in New Zealand which seems much more open and accepting of death, and family-based rituals around dying. When I read this from Corey, I remember how much we need to change in Australia. She writes, Things are not as they should be. For so many of us, death has become the unmentionable thing, a monstrous silence. But this is no help to the dying, who are probably lonelier now than they have ever been. The structure of the book is quite unusual for a memoir. It works in reverse, beginning with Corey Taylor's thoughts on her imminent death and her wish that assisted dying was legal in Australia. Then it moves to describe the difficult relationships she had with both of her parents, particularly as they aged and then died. And the book concludes with reflections on her younger years. One of the final scenes in the book depicts Corey's failed attempts at Pony Club. She writes... If I tell these little histories now, it is because they conjure a feeling of what it was like to be me back then. The same but different. The body still growing up and out into the world instead of contracting and retreating from it. It's often said that life is short, but life is also simultaneous. All of our experiences existing in time together, in the flesh. For what are we if not a body taking a mind for a walk? 
just to see what's there. And in the end, where do we get to, if not back to the beginning that we've never really left behind? And towards the end of the book, Corey writes, If I feel the need to relive the journey, it is all there written in runes on my body. Even my cells remember it. All that sunshine I bathed in as a child. Too much as it turned out. In my beginning is my end. This is perhaps a comment on the structure of her memoir as much as it is on her life. Corey, of course, died from skin cancer. The natural death care movement is now almost 20 years old and over the past decade in particular, the death positivity movement has started to make serious inroads into new communities. The fact that hundreds and hundreds of people have now completed the Natural Death Care Centre's death walker training with Zenith Farago has been one of the factors. Sadly, six years ago, Corey did not have this kind of support. You get the feeling all through the book that she was very lonely in the last few weeks of her life. She even writes, None of my doctors ever raised the subject of death with me, a fact I still find mystifying. But it's even more heartbreaking when she writes, We have lost our common rituals and our common language for dying and must either improvise or fall back on traditions about which we feel deeply ambivalent. And, of course, she's referring to religious rituals with with that ambivalence. On this point, she writes, For us, it seems that dying exposes the limitations of secularism like nothing else. That's why the death walker and death positive movements are so important. We are creating a new language and we are creating new rituals to support ourselves, our Fano or families and our communities as we all walk towards our own deaths. You're listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life and my guest on today's show is Claire Turnham. Claire is internationally recognised as a leading home death care practitioner, educator and advisor. Since setting up her Only With Love or OWL practice in the UK in 2014, Claire has presented regularly at international conferences and has been invited to teach gentle care of the body in hospices and communities around the world. Claire feels intuitively that death and dying still belong with families and is passionate about sharing her skills, knowledge and experiences to help others. Kia ora, Claire, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life. Kia ora, Kerry. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to uh, have this corridor with you after meeting you at the Death Matters Conference in uh, Christchurch in September. Now, what, what I'd like to do first is, and this is the first question I ask all of my guests on the show, is... Can you tell us a little bit about your very first experience of death, which for most people is usually as a child, but um, who knows, it might be later. So what was your first experience? Well, my first experience was, um, or the one that stands out the most, is when I was a member of a choir, a school choir, and we would be asked to go and sing at funerals and there was one in particular which was the the mother of a of a friend and I just remember being overcome with um, emotion because it all just seemed so strange I didn't recognize any of the practices I didn't recognize the language it was a Catholic um, requiem mass I, I didn't really recognize the smell and um I just found it quite a scary and upsetting experience. 
How old, sorry, how old did you say you were or did you not mention that? I was about 12. About 12. Yeah, I can imagine that would have been felt very foreign for you. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It did. It did. It felt foreign. But at the same time, I could identify with, you know, well, my friend was the same age as I was. So, you know, with her mother dying, it was um, hugely traumatic and um, and shocking. And that it could happen, you know, and um, because death hadn't really been anything that we had spoken too much about. And then I found all of these sort of practices, again, foreign to all of my senses. Um, Do you remember how, sorry, I was going to ask, were your parents with you at that funeral? They weren't with me, but my my mum did come along and she actually, because I became so upset and a friend of mine became so upset, she actually took us out. And I think that was at the time when children were generally kept away from funerals. So I also remember then as a teenager when my niece's um, grandfather died, um, I was babysitting for the the children whilst the adults all went to the 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 funeral and I I guess that was you know in those days children were very much kept away as a way of protecting them from grief um but I think you know having now experienced death where my own children were a very big part of it I realize how honoring it is for them to be included because they also have and share that relationship with somebody that they love Absolutely. I mean, that's a very common theme with my conversations with many of the guests on this show, that they have grown up with that experience of being shut out. And and sometimes it really motivates people to get involved later in life as in death work and as an advocate for it. So life changed for you significantly, though, in 2008, when you cared for your own father at home. And I understand that that really led to the birth or the the founding of the Only With Love movement. So for our listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about, I know it's such a big story, but can you share with us what happened for you and how that led you to go on and, and to be involved in supporting other families? So in September of 2008, I arrived in New Zealand um, from England with my four children and we came here on holiday to be with my dad and to celebrate the fact that we believed that um, he was going to be given the all clear from cancer. He had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and he had already had chemotherapy and radiotherapy and surgery that year. But as I went with him to his, what we thought was going to be his final oncology appointment, instead of being given the all clear, we were told that he was terminal. And I remember being so devastated in that meeting and he was too. And we came out into the car park and just hugged each other and just in this complete state of shock. And um, I knew that the four children were waiting Uh, for us at home and I was not sure how I was going to break this news to them but I realized very quickly that there was nothing that we could do to change the outcome but there was so much that we could do to change the journey and then the following weeks that that followed were some of the richest and most profound and beautiful and loving um, days of our lives and um, and he prepared for death as if he was going on a journey and we just spent every moment together and um, there, were, there was nobody else caring for him. 
and I was supported by hospice nurses myself, but there were um, he wouldn't have any hospital equipment in the house and he didn't want any hospice nurses to come in either. And as those weeks unfolded towards the beginning of November, it became clear that he was in the final stages of life. And although he was still driving just days before he died, he was still walking and, and living a, a relatively full and active life, really. Um, he was very conscious throughout. And um, just the day before he died, we went to a beautiful bird sanctuary um, near Tauranga. And we had a really lovely family day. And at the end of that, we came home and um, he asked me to take him to his bed. He hadn't slept in his bed for um, three weeks. And I had been sleeping in the lounge for the last five days, knowing that things were getting closer. Um, but on this day, he asked me to take him to his bed because his legs had really started to fail. And I knew that actually meant that he was ready to die. And we went to his uh, bed and we cuddled him and, and cared for him and, and sat with him for the next 18 hours. And as that time unfolded, it was it, it was incredible. It's as if time takes on a completely different energy, I guess. And um, we had a ruru that came to the window and called at three o'clock in the morning, which I knew was significant. He died around about 9am um, the following morning and... As that dying unfolded, that dying process, I recognized it as being very similar to a labor, a birthing labor, and that death is actually hard work. And his body went through many changes through, during that time, but it was as if I was witnessing the birth of his soul. And it was incredibly profound. And I found it very, the whole thing, a completely transforming process. And I knew that I wanted to help other people who perhaps hadn't been or didn't have the opportunity to be so connected at death. When you said that when he asked to go to his bed and he, because of his legs failing and that you knew that meant death was close, was mm. that an intuitive knowing? Yeah, everything was totally intuitive. Mm. And, you know, I'd home birthed my children, I'd home educated them. I just had this inner knowing, well, it just seemed like this inner knowing to me and of, of what that actually meant. And um, I guess we had, we just had a very close relationship as well. Um, but it was just an intuitive family-led loving response. And to me, that's what, that's, you know. The best thing. Um, I believe it belongs with family. So, you know, it, it just seemed the most natural thing. Um, but I just wasn't aware before this that that death was a process and that things happened. You know, his temperature dropped, um, things got, his breath and breathing got further apart, things slow was obviously slowing down, and that's that. That's a very natural way and normal way um, when somebody is dying. He wasn't he he wasn't medicated, and so he was very conscious, and he said some very profound things including just before he died, the most profound, I think, was he said to me, I'm going to go out now, Claire. And I found that incredible that he knew in that moment he was about to die. When did, 
only for love arise from that experience? Did you have someone contact you and say, hey, I've heard, you know, you've told me about what happened with you. Can you help us out? I knew straight away. In fact, I was on quite a high. It sounds quite bizarre in some ways to say it, but I found it such a transforming, profound experience that I just wanted to share it and to to help other people. And within a Within six weeks of his death, I traveled back to the UK and I was sharing the photos and I wanted to tell the story. And I, um, in 2009, I went off to do some other training and, and I remember talking to anybody that I could about this profound experience. And because I'd home birthed my children and I understood the importance of continuity of care, I realized that what we had provided for my dad had been this um, incredible care before he died and that we were still able as his family to keep that going after he died. And that to me was this um, such an awe-inspiring experience that I wanted to talk about it and it was met with resistance. I remember people saying to me, you know, you can't be, you can't work in this field and you can't work with people before they die and after they die, because it would sort of be like touting for business. And I found that I just didn't understand it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I didn't understand it because to me, it was the most normal and natural thing in the world. And, you know, I recognized that we'd been the best people to care for him in life. We were still the best people to care for him in death. And that's what we did. After he died, we kept his body at home for six days. And then we led his funeral in his garden. And it was the most beautiful, loving, very simple um experience and everybody was involved you know you asked me about the children but the children were so fully involved and so while he was dying in those final hours my eldest daughter who by then was 14 um was writing poetry and we shared that poetry at his funeral my next daughter who was 12 was very much into um, making sure she chose his clothes and she she wanted to make sure that he was, um, you know, looking good and cared for and tucked in and all of these beautiful things that she exhibited as caring for him. My son would just draw pictures. He was seven and he didn't say a lot, but but he would draw these most beautiful pictures of roses because my dad was a gardener. And um, he would put those with with him. And and my youngest daughter, who turned four the the same week that my dad died, she just cuddled him. She cuddled him before he died, when he was dying, and after he died. And, you know, it was a very beautiful, connected experience for all of us. But nobody, I never asked the children to do any of those things. They just did what they felt was completely natural and intuitive for them. Mm -hmm. And so when... Tell us about the first experience of working with another family and and yeah. oh well yes and and you asked me that question so so I went back to the UK and I and I did some training but I still realised that it had been this intuitive response and that everything we needed was within and it wasn't until um, you know um, after my dad died that I realised that my great grandmother on my mother's side had been the person in her Yorkshire village who had cared for people at the beginning. And at the end of life, and that she had gone to um, houses in her village to lay out a person when they died and keep them in the front room. And so I guess this inner knowing is was just really strong for me. Um, but I still didn't know how it was all going to fit. And then in 2013, I traveled to the States 
to the National Home Funeral Alliance conference where I met up with um, Jerry Grace Lyons, who I'd already formed a very uh, close friendship with. And she is often seen as or known as the grandmother of home funerals. And I realized that whilst what we had done for my dad had been an intuitive experience, this actually was a movement of families reclaiming death care and honoring um, their own in in ways that were very meaningful and appropriate and affordable. Um, so in 2014, I came after I came back from the UK from the from the States, I set about um, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and I set about setting up only with love. And in the April of 2014, I was invited down to a pop-up um a pop-up um, event during Death Matters Week in the UK, actually, um, with John Underwood, who was the founder of the Death Cafe. Yes, and we had a, we had a Death Cafe together, and and we did a lot of talking, and um, and during that time, a woman was just as we were setting up, she just came in and and she said, "Oh, you know, I've been caring for my husband for the last fifteen years," and you are just like angels that have been sent to me. And and um, I didn't know any of this was possible, but when the time is right, I will come and find you. And she did actually uh, about um, four or five months later. But it was John Underwood who, who actually recommended me for my first home funeral. And so the person who died was a friend of his and she was 53. She died of breast cancer. And it was um, it was such a beautiful entry into this uh, my only with love practice, and I was the celebrant for her funeral. Um, and when she died, her um, her whole family were gathered around her bedside, and her son was holding her, and his fiance was holding him, and so on. It went all the way around the bedside, and her husband um, was reading. Buddhist prayers um, and then her the female her female friends and family um, all women cared for her body and they dressed her in a white sari and they laid her in her bed um, from the Saturday night when she died until the Friday following Friday which was her funeral and the family decorated a car and they brought her to the crematorium and it was just an incredible beautiful experience and the October after that her husband took her ashes to India because to scatter to scatter them in the in the Ganges. And whilst they were there, one of the friends who travelled with them had an accident and fell off the train and died. And so they'd gone with her ashes and they came back with a friend's ashes. And then I was asked to lead the the memorial ceremony for their family and friends again. I mean, these, you know, being part of these uh, incredible uh, times in people's lives is such an honor. And I found it such a privilege. And, you know, the relationships that I form are very intimate and ongoing. And, you know, Only With Love has has worked in the most beautiful way ever since. But since I've been back in New Zealand, I realized that the biggest factor that people need here is education, education around what is possible, what is legal, what is meaningful and appropriate. And it's not always offered. Mm. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question, because 
from those experiences you just shared, it sounds like your role is really to empower other people to do things for themselves more than coming in and doing it for them. You know, it's very much about education and or being there in the background to enable families to take the lead in the care of their loved ones. That's Is right. That correct? Yeah. That, that's totally right. Yeah. And whenever I, whenever I am asked or invited by a family to be a part of of their experience, I always come in on the side of the family, as in I'm just there and will do whatever I'm asked or whatever is needed, but always recognising that it is the family who is in complete control of the process and that it does belong to them. It's their person and it's their right to, to be able to care for them themselves. And my role is often a guidance one. And it's incredible to see when people feel confident to step forward to be able to lead a funeral themselves or to care for the person they love themselves. And they too also have these experiences like I did with my dad. Often it leaves people in, in a sort of a state of euphoria because they, when you have done absolutely everything you know that is possible and that you've done your best to ensure that everything and is, is, um, that the person is cared for and honoured in the most beautiful way, it is profound. And, you know, so many experiences that I could share and talk about, but essentially, you know, and I, I'm just there as a reminder that families can do this themselves and um, and it's a beautiful thing to witness. Mm. So one of the things you covered in your Death Matters New Zealand uh, presentation was the review of the Burial and Cremation Act 1964 in oh, yes. New Zealand legislation, which is quite old. And the review, I believe, started five or six years ago and it still hasn't, you know, the legislation still hasn't compl- been released, the new re- legislation. You mm. have an MBE in recognition of the work you've done advocating for consumer rights in the UK and if we had more time, I'd love to hear that story, but unfortunately we don't. So we'll focus, we'll keep focusing on, on this topic. But how is that passion being channeled here? You know, I believe you, you seem to me when you were presenting at the conference to be an advocate of fair pay for funerals because the funeral industry have just exorbitant charges for things that don't need to cost that much. I, I think um, funerals in New Zealand are the biggest um, dare I say it, rip-off, because whilst death affects us all, people in the most part are unaware of what is legal or safe or possible in all matters related to death and dying. And I think New Zealanders simply deserve better. Much of the funeral industry in this country is outdated and shrouded in secrecy. There are some very large corporate um, conventional practices which deny in my opinion, families, the, certainly um, they lack transparency. They lack transparency of cost, they lack transparency of service, and they, lo- they lack transparency of choice. And I, as I've said, I think New Zealanders deserve better. I, I think that just like around the world, there is a growing need and a trend for families and communities to demystify death and to reclaim the rights to care for their own and to honour their dead in in compassionate, meaningful, sustainable and affordable ways. Um, Much within the corporate funeral industry is hidden from the public. 
And within New Zealand, the fastest growing funeral providers belong to two companies which are listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. And because of that, their primary focus is to provide value for their shareholders, not for the families in, in their care. And so what we see is um, very sadly, I think people at at um, times in their life when they're grieving and they're vulnerable, we see them being taken advantage of. Now, I'm not speaking about all funeral practitioners or providers because there are some very good ones. So let me make that clear. Um, and some of my very closest friends work in the industry. But the system itself, there is this model, and it's I've seen it in operation overseas. It's the same model whereby corporate profit-driven large businesses come in and they buy up the small independents. Most people are not aware that this happens because those small independents, even after they've been bought out, still display the old names, the personal names. But actually within New Zealand, it's true to say that there are two very big businesses that are buying up these smaller independents and they buy, they they work in a way which means that most of their costs are not clear and there's no transparency. So people don't actually know what they're paying for and they don't know what they're paying for or likely to be charged um, before they're in crisis. And so it means that it's a distressed purchase. Many people aren't aware that they can change a funeral provider. And one of these large companies is in 2019 in Australia, it was, um, the law was changed so that they all funeral providers had to be transparent with costs and this particular company haven't um they 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 did that because they were forced to in new south wales but they didn't do it anywhere else and there's a reason for it because it works it works because they can actually increase prices they can add on they can have non negotiable fees and people really just have no idea and to me, this is completely wrong. We need much more clarity. We need much more transparency and we need more choice. In New Zealand, it's very hard for, you know, families have the right um, to organise a funeral themselves. Anyone can do that, whether or not they choose to use a funeral professional. But what makes it harder is that within this country, we have a very high embalming rate. So something like 90% of all people are embalmed, when in most cases it's not necessary. We also have, um, it's also very difficult for families to buy the resources that they need or purchase the resources that they need from third parties. Um, because many funeral directors don't, um, they make it hard for families to buy things direct. Yes, and, and so, of course they're putting margins on top of everything, aren't they? That they and they're putting yeah. margins on top of everything, mm -hmm. and you know this is to the detriment of the New Zealand public. And when you have funerals that are can be, you know, people can be charged anywhere from usually ten to fifteen thousand, sometimes more for a funeral. You know, it can be hugely um, problematic because people are going into debt. They, you know, many families just do not have that um, money available. You know, we talk about a cost of living crisis, but we also have a cost of dying crisis. And, and many families that I see and know of 
could benefit from much more um, clearer information so that they can make informed choices and be aware of all the options and um, all the choices available to them, which would save them a huge and substantial and in many cases, at least 50% of those costs simply um, by making a few changes. And to me, that is very wrong. In the UK, there is now, there has been a government review similar to the one that's going on here. Funeral directors now have to be much clearer. They have to display these prices on their websites and on all the information, and they have to show a breakdown of costs. They do in New South Wales as well, but in New Zealand, no. We are seeing some new um, independent funeral directors and some not-for-profit community groups who are starting up, who are very much this transparent. So they are showing these prices on, you know, in, in all of the literature they, that they produce and on their website. But the corporate, the it, it doesn't benefit the the corporate or the industrial mm, scale funeral industry. Um, and that's to, you know... I, I think it needs to change, and, and I'm very proud to be part of uh, a submission that um, we put to the government to um, to to really highlight our concerns around transparency of service, cost, and choice. Have you had any updates on when any announcements are going to be made about p- potential changes to the legislation? We've met with the uh, Ministry of Health. And um, my understanding is that um, they are now doing extra consultation, um, both with Māori and with other groups that that have submitted. I think it's really important that we protect the rights of families to be able to care for our own and that we're not restricted because that is a fundamental right, I believe, of all people to have that choice, um, whether they choose to do that or not. And you know, with the high costs of funerals, we are seeing this, we, we are seeing it as being a major catalyst for the rise of emerging not-for-profit compassionate communities approaches. And that's an amazing thing that's going on with New Zealand. And I'd really like to share about that as well, because we are seeing these different models that are happening now, whereby um, families and communities are taking and reclaiming back the ability to do things themselves. You know, Anybody can arrange a funeral in New Zealand. Anybody can do the paperwork. Anybody can drive the car that the that the that the person who's died travels into their cremation or their burial. Um, we don't need to have a casket. We can have a shroud if we want to. We can make a calf, a coffin or a casket. Um, we can decorate a cardboard coffin or casket. You know, these are all choices that are available to everyone, but they're not not everyone is aware of that. And that's where education is so needed so that people do know all of their choices and options. And of course, yeah, coming back to the point about the high rates of embalming in New Zealand, I was quite shocked, even much higher than it is in Australia. It is huge. And, you know, and like I said before, in most cases, it is simply not necessary, mm-hmm. but it's a way that it keeps the um, the control of death within the hands of very few. And also and a big part they, of the expense of, of a funeral. That's it, right. Yeah. That, that's right. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you look again to the UK, which has um, leads the world in natural burial, and, and in fact, you know, I would probably guess that I would probably be the most experienced person in this country. Um, with natural burial and in you know you can't be 
you cannot be um, embalmed if you are having a natural burial. So it, in some ways it's, you know, you have to ask yourself, why do we not have more natural burial sites here? You know, mm. why is it all controlled? And partly it's because of this high embalming rate. And if that um, changes, then I believe we will see much more choice available to us, whereby, you know, which will lower the cost. Mm. And, you know, I, I'm really proud that um, I'm the co-founder of Monarchy Mats and, and, and Monarchy Mats are a safe and simple specialist death care resource, a cooling mat that allows families to be able to care for dead their own themselves at home mm. and you know um with annie my co-founder or our co-founder we are seeing some extraordinary and um, beautiful um care of stillborn babies happening in new zealand now because families are now available are able to use monarchy mats and we've been training in um, in hospitals and hospices so that um, the staff and the midwives and, and the nurses are able to guide families into how um, how they can care for their babies and take them home. And that in itself is changing the way we're doing death care in this country. And, and we just need more of it. We need mm. more people to realise that they have everything they need to be able to care for their own and um, and they can do so safely and they can do so legally and it can be the most meaningful and rewarding and beneficial experience to them. And also help save the planet because, of course, the costs of embalming to to the earth are not great either. And, and monarchy mats are available. Mm. You can use them for not just first babies but for children and adults as well you just need need more of them is that right that's right yeah, yeah. so yeah. since I set up um owner with love um I've you know I've used monarchy mats um but at, for all ages but at the moment Annie and I have um been really focused on our most vulnerable and tiniest lives and um we see that as the starting point and, you know, somehow I think people can understand the importance, I think, of, of caring for a baby, mm. of families caring for a baby. And it somehow is easier to understand that of how important it is um, not to be denied that experience if the families wish to do so. But it, it is available for any age and, um, you know, and I've used them with many adults mm. as well. So, you know, I'm really... I feel excited that we're in this um, time of change. We just need more people to realise that that they don't have to um, just do things the conventional way and that it will be um, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, environmentally and financially a benefit to them to know more about their options and choices. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. But I have one last question to ask you before we finish, sure. which I ask all my guests on the show. And it is what song you would like played at your own funeral or wake or celebration of your life? Oh, yeah. Hayley Westenra singing um, Hine or Hine. Ah, beautiful, beautiful. Great. Thank you so much, Claire, for joining me today on Death Walker's Guide to Life. Thank you so much, Kerry. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland, and I've just been speaking with Claire Turnham.
And now it's time for Death on Screen. And in keeping with the theme for today's show, which is focused on the months, weeks and days before and after someone dies, I'd like to tell you about a short video on YouTube called Death is Not the End Point. As Zenith Farago, the founder of the Natural Death Care Centre, my friend and teacher says, most people agree that when people die, something leaves the body. This video features Zach Bush, MD, who is a physician specialising in internal medicine, endocrinology and hospice care. He's talking to Rich Roll on his popular podcast series, which has been running since 2013. Quite extraordinarily, Rich Roll has released more than 700 episodes. I've got a way to go. (laughs) But this interview is from episode 414, and it's been doing the rounds on social media recently and popped up in my feed about a month or two ago. So I'm just going to play you a brief excerpt from the video. And It comes after Zach has been talking about three very, very different cases of people he has resuscitated who have, you know, have died and he's brought them back to life. And this is what he has to say. And every one of them, first sentence, why'd you bring me back? And then as they start to get oriented and in the, in the hours that follow, they are telling their loved ones, I went into this space and it was bright white light everywhere. And I, in that moment, felt completely accepted for the first time in my life. And that was an unexpected sentence to hear out of multiple accounts. I felt completely accepted for the first time in my life. So what do you make of that? I think we're all walking around lonely as hell. Yeah, so it was quite extraordinary to have this video lined up to talk about today and to realize that two of the things that have come out of the corridor conversations that I've had with my guests and also Corey's book today is about the fact that People can be very lonely and home-based death care in particular and caring for our loved ones and being with them in their last weeks, days of their lives is one of the most beautiful gifts you can give to someone you love. We've come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. Find out more about the show and catch up on previous episodes at Death Walker's Guide to Life. Once again, Kamihi, a big thank you to Tasman District Creative Community Scheme for supporting the show. Matiwa. See you next time. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.